Hey Northerners, a listener's note. The following episode contains coarse language, adult themes, and content of a violent and disturbing nature. The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Northern Blood podcast. Listener discretion is advised. episode 13 of the Northern Blood Podcast. Um, Today's episode is actually going to be one of Canada's most notorious serial killer slash murder duos um, in all of Canada's history. And if not the world, it is one of the most infamous uh, couple murderer cases. Um, If you know nothing about serial killers, you probably still will recognize the names of Paul Bernardo and Carla Homolka. Um, So there have been a lot of notorious couples throughout the history of crime. Um, One is Myra Hindley and Ian Bradley, and they were actually a British pair between 1964 and 65. They actually murdered children and buried them on a desolate Saddleworth Moor in Northern England. And more recently, the infamous husband and wife team of Rosemary and Fred West killed their rumors and buried their bodies in and around their home in England as well. Now, obviously, we haven't been cursed in Canada with that many duos. Um, However, these unspeakable crimes always seem to take place somewhere else. Um, And then along came this duo, and I'm going to tell you their story. So he, Paul, was a handsome University of Toronto graduate, and she was a high school student who worked part-time at a pet store in St. Catharines, Ontario. They met quite by accident. Uh, Paul Bernardo had time on his hands on the evening of October 17th, 1987, when it all began. He and his best buddy, Van Smyrnis, dropped into Howard Johnson's, which is a hotel chain in Canada, on, actually, I think it's all around the world, but in Canada, (laughs) on Markham Road in the Toronto suburb of Scarborough for a bite to eat. The popular orange-roofed motel often hosted trade shows and conventions. And as luck would have it, 17-year-old Carla Homolka and a friend, Debbie Purdy, were in Toronto attending a pet show. Now, the two men were veterans in the art of picking up girls. When they spotted Carla and Debbie in the restaurant, they wasted very little time in introducing themselves and joining the girls at their table. Paul sidled up to Carla and she did nothing to discourage him away. As the guys flirted with the girls, they learned that the young women were in the city for a pet show. In fact, they were staying right there at the Howard Johnson's. It didn't take long before Paul and Van were in the girls' room. Van and Debbie did not hit it off. However, Paul and Carla were another kettle of fish altogether. They took to each other as if a magnetic force was at play. It is actually said that this duo was like the modern day Bonnie and Clyde, the Canadian version of Bonnie and Clyde. Like they were like oil and fire. Like they just, they were magnetic. Now Carla fell hard for Mr. Paul. 
And since he was quite the charmer, she actually found out that he was an accountant with a prestigious firm with Price Waterhouse. And the couple had a very vigorous and satisfying sex life on the first night. Uh, she was completely smitten, and in fact, so was Paul. And after their first sexual encounter, Paul spent most weekends in St. Catharines where she lived. Eventually, he met Carla's friends, whose opinion of him was kind of split. Some thought he was a bunk, others felt he dressed too well, acted like a know-it-all. Generally though, they felt like he really liked Carla. For sure, he treated her better than the locals who attended Sir Winston Churchill High School and dated Carla's friends. Paul did have a distinct advantage over the high school students of St. Catharines. After all, he was a junior accountant with a well-known accounting firm. He was earning an excellent salary and could well afford to take Carla out to the best restaurants and gift her with flowers. Paul was spending many, many weekends in St. Catharines, which was about an hour and a half drive from his Scarborough home, that Carla's parents actually invited him to just stay the weekends at their home. They quickly accepted Paul as if he were a member of the family. And on rare occasions, Carla would visit the Bernardos in Scarborough. It was obvious to everyone that the young, clean-cut couple were totally enamored with each other. However, Paul was also seeing other girls on the side, and sometimes he grew annoyed with Carla by her presence and interfered with his extracurricular activities, if you want to call them that. For her part, Carla was totally devoted to her new true love. She constantly spoke to her guy on the phone and talked incessantly to her friends about how wonderful he was. Certainly, Paul had some idiosyncrasies. He disliked Carla discussing her previous boyfriends. Sometimes he told her she was unattractive and didn't know how to behave properly, but what the heck, he was her guy and someday she hoped to become Miss Paul Bernardo. Toward the end of 1988, Paul leased a gold 1989 two-door Nissan, the better to impress Carla and her family when he drove up to her front door on weekends. Carla was flying high. She had a good-looking, six-foot-one-inch boyfriend who was very serious about their relationship. Career-wise, Paul was rising to the top. Of course, she had no doubt, as for herself, she loved animals and was planning to become a veterinarian one day. The future looked pretty bright for those two. No one knew that Paul Bernardo was leading a double life. Back in Scarborough, he was raping young women. In May, two girls were attacked in separate incidents as they got off the bus. Toward the end of July, another attack took place. Later in the year, on December 16th, a fourth rape occurred. Two days before Christmas, the Scarborough rapist, as he was now called, struck again. The 19-year-old victim was made to repeat over and over and over that she loved her attacker and wished him a Merry Christmas. She was made to endure unspeakable indignities under the threat of a rapist's ever-present knife. All of the rapes followed a very distinct pattern. The rapist talked a lot. He approached his quarry from behind and then disembarked from a bus, and all the attacks took place in Scarborough. Paul Bernardo lived in Scarborough at 21 Sir Raymond Drive. The rapes continued through 1988 and 1989, and on May 26, 1990, a young woman walking along Midland Avenue was raped on the campus of Agincourt Collegiate. She was able to give police an extremely detailed and accurate description of her attacker, and a composite drawing was made from the description. It appeared on the front page of the Toronto Sun beside the saying, Have you seen this man? And Van Smyrnas recognized the drawing of his good buddy Paul Bernardo. Remember, Van is the guy who was at the bar where Paul first met Carla. 
Now, Van told his brother, who in turn told his wife, and much later, she informed police of her suspicions. Still later, uh, Paul was contacted by the police who took DNA samples from him. Paul was polite and obliging. He laughingly told his friends that he had been tested and cleared. And everyone got a chuckle out of the incident. Their friend Paul, a vicious rapist, preposterous. Their friend Paul with the sexy girlfriend, not even a chance. Their friend Paul who could pick up a different trick every night of the week? It was more than a coincidence. Paul's DNA samples were filed away with hundreds of others to be checked. Life goes on. Carla decided not to further her education. Instead, she went to work full-time at the Martindale Animal Clinic. Paul left Pricewaterhouse and caught on with a Toronto firm of the Goldfarb Shulman Patel & Co. He came highly recommended. And the year 1991 would be a banner year. Paul and Carla planned to marry. By now, the couple had experienced every conceivable type of sex that can be divulged in by two consenting partners. Carla was a compliant partner to every depravity. At any time, she could have broken off their relationship, but she didn't. She loved her man, despite his very peculiar desires. The lovers and the entire Homoka family had been devastated by a traumatic and tragic death the Christmas before. There were six occupants in the Homoka home on the snowy night of December 23, 1990. Carla's father, Carol, watching TV. Her mother, Dorothy, was working in the kitchen. Paul, Carla, and her two younger sisters, Lori and Tammy. Paul was horsing around with his latest toy, which was a Sony video camera. If it moved, Paul shot it. Only two people in the house knew that Carla had promised Paul a very unique Christmas present. She actually was arranging and assisting in Paul's rape of her 15-year-old sister, Tammy. Preparations for the rape had been meticulous and lengthy. Paul had expressed his interest in having sex with Tammy some months earlier. Initially, Carla had opposed the idea, but eventually she agreed. She would literally do anything for Paul. That night, two days before Christmas, booze was flowing like water in the Homolka house. Paul, Carla, Tammy, they all drank through most of the evening. And in time, Lori grew tired of watching TV and she just went to bed. Tammy was feeling no pain. Dorothy and Carol went to bed and sang goodnight to their two daughters and Paul and Carla. And according to Paul, he and Carla dozed off while watching TV, but awoke with a start to find Tammy choking and vomiting. He moved her from the couch as she'd been sitting onto the floor and attempted to revive her by doing mouth-to-mouth. While he tried to move her into Carla's bedroom, Carla dialed 911. A short time later, ambulance attendants and police were at the scene. Tammy was in some serious distress and was rushed to the hospital. Constable David Weeks couldn't help but notice the red blotches around Tammy's mouth and nostrils. He found it so unusual, and the Homolka household was understandably in turmoil. Their worst fears were realized that after 2 a.m., they were informed that Tammy was in fact dead. Paul Bernardo was heartbroken and Carla was too devastated by her sister's untimely death. An autopsy confirmed that Tammy had suffered cardiac arrest after choking on her own vomit. Standard drug tests indicated that no drugs had been present in the girl's body. Now note, Halcyon is not on the list of standard drugs. Authorities decided that the vomiting had been caused by a combination of her dinner that night and a variety of alcoholic beverages that she consumed. It was just one of those weird and tragic incidents that occur from time to time. No one was to blame and no one delved into the mystery of the red blotches on her face. 
The subject of delaying Paul and Carla's wedding scheduled for that June was discussed, but Carla would not hear of it. The wedding would take place as planned, and that was that. Probably because she had held up her end of the bargain for Paul. The devoted couple moved into a rented house at 57 Bayview Drive in Port Dalhousie, just outside of St. Catharines. Paul had left his accounting position and was now making a fine living smuggling cigarettes into Canada from the United States, only about a few miles away. Paul and his buddy Van converted the back of Paul's Nissan into a virtual secret compartment to hold the cigarettes. The partnership flourished and they were grossing about $2,000 a week. Wedding plans, mostly under Paul's direction, were proceeding nicely, although there were a couple of glitches. Carla's friends noticed that she seemed to be bruised much of the time. Carla had always had a ready explanation. She had fallen, or one of the animals at the clinic had become rough, that sort of thing, and no one really paid too much attention. But the bruising wasn't everything. There was something else. The dark secret shared by Paul and Carla. They knew very well that Tammy's death was far from accidental. Carla, intent on giving her sister to her fiancé as a Christmas gift, had had no problem obtaining the necessary drugs from her clinic where she was employed. She picked up several halcyon pills, which Paul ground into powder. The sleeping pills should do the job, but just to make sure, Carla stole a quantity of halothane, which is an anesthetic that was often used at the clinic on animals before an operation. She knew she didn't have the proper equipment to administer halothane, but felt that she could give it to her sister by simply soaking some on a cloth and holding it over Tammy's face. After consuming several drinks laced with halcyon, Tammy fell asleep. Carla placed the halothane-soaked cloth over her sister's mouth. Paul undressed the hapless girl and raped her. He performed other sex acts on the unconscious teenager while Carla joined in on the sex games, sometimes under Paul's direction. The entire assault was videotaped, and when the camera was turned off, Tammy started vomiting and stopped breathing. Paul attempted mouth-to-mouth while Carla dialed 911. There's the real answer. That's why he got the video camera. That's why she had the red blotches on her face. They are literally the most disgusting duo. But later, Carla would relate that together they dressed Tammy and got rid of any incriminating evidence. They hid the video camera in Carla's room. It wasn't long before ambulance attendants and constable weeks were at the scene. The wedding date was fast approaching and Carla played grotesque sex games with her partner in crime. She was told to refer him to the, as the king or big shot of businessmen. She displayed more and more bruising. Friends were given the same old excuses, and sometimes Carla said she'd had a mishap in the garden, or on one occasion, she told them she'd bumped her head on the dashboard of the car. After Tammy's death, the beatings seemed to escalate. Paul often had Carla dress in Tammy's clothing and had sex with her, pretending she was her dead sister. The heavy drinking, weird sex, and beatings continued, and the team of Paul and Carla were on a rampage, but only they knew the extent of their monstrous lifestyle. By day, they were an attractive young couple who lived in a comfortable home in Port Dalhousie. By night, they were something else. Paul wasn't satisfied. He often talked to Carla about capturing his own sex slave. Carla thought it was a great idea. Take that in. Like, this couple is just... Oh my gosh. That's why she wasn't surprised that when on the night of June 14th, 1991, Paul brought a young girl into their home and it was 14 year old Leslie Mahaffey's misfortune to be standing in front of her Burlington, Ontario home when Paul Bernardo was on the prowl. Leslie was in a bit of a bind. 
Her folks had locked her out because she had missed her curfew and she was hesitant about waking them up. Paul made the youngster's acquaintance and convinced her that there would be no harm in joining him for a cigarette in the Nissan. Once Leslie was in the vehicle, Paul pulled out a knife and blindfolded the terrified girl. In the wee hours of the morning, Paul was back in Port Dalhousie explaining to his wife that he'd captured a sex slave. Carla wasn't that upset. She went back to sleep. Paul had sex with the captive. Eventually, the diabolical pair had a three-way sex with Leslie. All that weekend, Leslie was sexually attacked while the scenes were videotaped. Early Sunday morning, Paul decided that Leslie could identify him and would have to be killed. Carla would later describe how Leslie fell asleep, after which Paul tied an electrical cord around her neck and strangled her to death. To this day, Paul claims he did not kill Leslie. The teenager's body was wrapped in a blanket and lugged downstairs to the root cellar. Next day, Carla and Paul had her folks over for Father's Day dinner at their home. Dorothy and Carol were obviously unaware that a few feet from them was the corpse of a young girl from Burlington. That next day, Carla went to work after Paul discussed what he would do with the body in the root cellar. He had a great idea. He would dismember the body, encase it in cement, and throw it in a lake. Using a chainsaw, Paul dissected Leslie's body and encased it in cement blocks that were formed in cardboard boxes. Paul insists that Carla assisted through the operation while she claims that the entire undertaking was performed while she was at work. The cement blocks were lugged out to the Nissan. It took a few trips to Lake Gibson to dispose of the mortal remains of Leslie Mahaffey. Carla helped carry the heavier blocks, and that night, Paul meticulously cleaned the house. The wedding was less than two weeks away. And due to any standards that the Bernard Homolka nuptials were spectacular. The bride and groom were transported from St. Mark's Anglican Church on Niagara-on-the-Lake in a horse-drawn white carriage. The reception was held at the historic little town's most luxurious facility called Queenland's Queen's Landing Hotel. The Bernardos made one handsome couple indeed. The same day, Bill Greckel and his wife Mary were busy putting their canoe in the waters of Lake Gibson when they came across a block of cement. The Greckels had stumbled across a portion of the cement-encased body of Leslie Mahaffey. The Bernardos were honeymooning in Hawaii. Carla endured terrible beatings and came home looking a mess. She was the envy of many with her quaint suburban home and handsome husband. From time to time, Carla's injuries were severe enough for her to visit local doctors. She complained of a bad back, once she had a broken finger, on another occasion a cracked rib. Carla always had a convenient excuse to explain away her injuries. So soon Paul had the urge to capture another sex slave. Sometimes he took Carla with him and when she went on the prowl feeling that it would be easier to pick up a young girl with another woman present, that reminds me of Robert Picton. Now, besides Carlo could help with the actual abduction, his wife enthusiastically agreed. On Thursday, April 16, 1992, the pair of stalkers strolled the streets of St. Catharines for a young girl. The expedition had been very well planned. Paul felt that the best time to pluck a victim off the streets would be when the unsuspecting youngsters were coming home from school. And there she was, just the type Paul wanted. He pulled the Nissan into the Grace Lutheran Church parking lot. Carla leaned out the window and asked Kristen French for directions. As the girl attempted to be helpful, Carla produced a map where Kristen studied, and in an instant, Paul was behind her, welding a knife. He pushed Kristen into the car. Carla jumped into the back seat and held Kristen's head by clutching her hair. Paul drove home to Port Dalhousie. 
there was one concern. During the brief struggle to get Kristen in the car, she had dropped one of her shoes, but there were other things on Paul's mind. He gave Kristen explicit instructions. She was to call him master and king. Simply put, she was to do exactly as he commanded. Most of the indignities Kristen was forced to endure were videotaped. Carla, as usual, appeared to be a willing accomplice and enjoyed herself to the fullest. Sometimes Carla and Kristen were the main performers in Paul's warped movie-making exploits. Carla and Paul knew that Kristen could identify them, and so all her captivity, the schoolgirl's fate, was absolutely sealed. They knew they had to kill her. After Kristen had suffered through Paul and Carla's every sexual whim for 13 days, Paul approached her from behind, wrapped a black electrical cord around her neck, and held it tight until Kristen could breathe no more. That night, the Bernardos untied Kristen's ankles and undid her handcuffs. Her body was stripped and washed in a jacuzzi. Paul instructed Carla to cut off Kristen's hair because it might have picked up fibers from the carpet. They burned their victim's clothing in the fireplace. And finally, they drove the body to Burlington while Paul and Carla carried it into some bushes. Within 24 hours, Kristen French's body was found by a man searching for scrap metal only a few miles from Lake Gibson, where Leslie's body had been discovered in cement blocks. The two murders were linked. Some madman in southern Ontario was abducting young girls off the streets, and a monster was loose among us. Police had some clues. Kristen's shoe established the point from which she had been kidnapped. Several witnesses reported that a cream-colored late 1970s Camaro was seen in the area, the time Kristen was observed walking home from school. The massive search was conducted for the Camaro, but like all other clues, it led them, didn't lead them to the killer or killers. Paul enjoyed watching the TV and newspaper coverage of his latest crime. He firmly believed he would never be caught. Meanwhile, Paul's verbal and physical abuse of Carla escalated. He would strike his wife with little to no provocation. Carla was finding it increasingly difficult to hide her bruises from colleagues at the clinic. And after a brief trip to Montreal, Paul returned and severely beat his wife about the head with a flashlight. The resulting swelling and discoloration to her face was so pronounced that her co-worker anonymously called Carla's mother, telling her something had to be done about Carla's condition. Dorothy Omoka drove to the Martindale Clinic and was aghast at the bruising of her daughter's eyes. Despite her condition, Carla went to work that afternoon, and her family was to not be dissuaded. That evening, her father, mother, and sister showed up at her Port Dalhousie home. The house was in darkness, and the family reluctantly returned to St. Catharines. The next day, Carla's mother again visited her daughter at the animal clinic, and Carla was actually in worse shape than she had been before. Now both her eyes were nothing more than black sockets and her entire face was horribly swollen. Carla obviously just attempted to lie to her mother saying that she'd been in a car accident and this time her excuses were not believed. Eventually Carla confessed to her mother that Paul had viciously beaten her with a flashlight. She'd been over the border on a cigarette smuggling junket the night before and Paul had continually beaten her the entire way home. That night, while Paul was out of the house, the Hamolkas removed their daughter from her Port Dalhousie home for a short time, hit her with one of Lori's friends. The police were called and Carla was transported to the St. Catharines General Hospital, where bruises were found all over her body. She remained in hospital for three days, after which her family thought it was best for her to stay with relatives in Brampton, an hour's drive from St. Catharines. There was a grave fear that Paul would come looking for his wife. 
Meanwhile, DNA testing continued on the samples that had been gathered two years earlier from the victims of the Scarborough Rapist. The results were compared with specimens taken from suspects. The Ontario Centre of Forensic Science came up with a match, Paul Bernardo. Bernardo was placed under surveillance while investigators looked into the connection he might have had to do with the deaths of Leslie Mahaffey and Kristen French. They learned that a month earlier, his wife Carla had filed assault charges against him. In addition, he was connected with another death, that of his wife's sister, Tammy Hamolka, who had died under unusual circumstances. The report indicated there were mysterious red blotches around the girl's nostrils and mouth, and no one knew with any degree of certainty what had caused those red stains. Unknown to the authorities, Carla had told her aunt, with whom she was staying, that she had led a crazy life with Paul Bernardo, including the taking of human life. Her aunt advised her to hire a lawyer and suggested George Walker of Niagara Falls. For the past several days, detectives Ron Whitefield and Mary Lee Metcalf have been questioning Carla about her husband's involvement in the Scarborough rapes. When her uncle was unable to drive Carla to Niagara Falls to see her lawyer, he asked detectives if they would give her a lift. They agreed and drove Carla to Niagara Falls where she told Walker her unbelievable story. Walker accepted Carla as a client and advised her to talk to absolutely no one other than himself. On Wednesday, February 17, 1993, detectives drove up to the front door of what was to become the most notorious house in Canada and arrested Paul Bernardo. He was transported to an interrogation facility. Paul Bernardo was advised that his wife had pulled the plug. Investigators knew about Leslie Mahaffey, Kristen French, his activities as the Scarborough rapist, and at this point, Paul Bernardo had been charged with only rape. He had not been charged with any murder. In fact, the evidence against him was primarily his battered wife's statements pointing to him as the killer. He'd retained lawyer Barry Fox, but they soon had a falling out and Fox withdrew from the Bernardo affair, probably a smart choice on his part. The infamous home in Port Dalhousie was searched for 10 weeks. Several items were found, a hunting knife, traces of the sleeping medication Halcyon, cardboard boxes similar to those that had held Leslie Mahaffey's body parts. Above all, police recovered hundreds of videotapes. Most were popular television shows. Among the tapes was one of less than two minutes depicting Carla having sex in a variety of ways with another unidentified woman. She appeared to thoroughly be enjoying herself. Of the fingerprints found in the house, not one belonged to Leslie Mahaffey or Kristen French. Short of taking the house apart, all agreed it was a meticulous search. On April 30th, 1993, police left the Bernardo residence convinced they had found everything the house had to offer, and they were wrong. By this time, Bernardo had a new lawyer, Ken Murray, and Murray received permission to remove some of Paul's belongings of the house. It was a reasonable request. The lawyer took a television set and other items. Unknown to all, under Paul's instructions, he removed a tape hidden behind a built-in light fixture the lawyer told no one of its existence. Carla's lawyer, George Walker, was contacted by the St. Catharines Prosecutor's Office. A deal was in the offering. They desperately needed more information to guarantee a conviction of murder as it applied to Bernardo. Walker met with regional prosecutor Ray Houlihan. The deal was simple enough. Walker knew Bernardo had killed Leslie and Kristen. According to him, Carla had been forced to take part of the sexual attacks. She was a battered, abused wife. The pair had taped the indignities inflicted on the two girls, but not the actual killings. For her eyewitness testimony, Carla sought immunity from prosecution. The deal was passed along to the director of the Crown Law Office, Marie Siegel. 
After two weeks of meetings, Walker and Siegel came to an agreement. Carla would plead guilty to two manslaughter charges in return for two 10-year prison sentences to run concurrently. With time off for good behavior, she would be eligible for parole in three years and four months. She would be arrested but released on $100,000 bail, which her parents had raised on their St. Catherine's home. Any false statement by Carla would immediately make the arrangement invalid. All in all, not a bad deal for Carla, considering she had assisted in the kidnapping of Kristen French and had several opportunities to release the girl when Paul was out of the house. Walker saw to it that Carla was confined to Northwestern General Hospital for a battery of tests. While there, she told several doctors how her sister Tammy had met her death. In addition, she wrote a letter to her parents explaining in detail how her sister had really died. Under these strange circumstances, Crown Prosecutor Murray Siegel now felt that he had to conclude the deal. Carla must spend additional time in prison for her involvement in her own sister's death. He and Walker agreed that for Carla's complete testimony, including circumstances surrounding her sister's death, she should receive two 12-year sentences to run concurrently, making her eligible for parole in four years and four months. In other words, she would face no further charges, but would have two years tacked on the previously agreed 10-year sentences, and the deal was struck. Carla gave a complete statement of life with Paul Bernardo, including details of the deaths of three young girls, described their agonies while they were subjugated to hideous indignities and their horrible deaths. While she didn't confess to the actual killings, she revealed her role as an assistant in all the girls' torments. Her statement in question and answer form took three days to complete. Carla concluded her session May 17, 1993, and as a result, Paul Bernardo was charged with two counts of first-degree murder, two counts of unlawful confinement, two counts of aggravated sexual assault, two counts of kidnapping, and one count of causing an indignity to a human body. Carla was the first of the pair to make a court appearance, and the press was banned from reporting the proceedings. She pleaded guilty to two counts of manslaughter and then hustled off to spend her first night in Kingston's prison for women. With Carla safely tucked away in prison, investigators concentrated on gathering evidence against Bernardo. His lawyer, Ken Murray, constantly complained that the Crown was tardy in sharing information with them. He and his junior, Carolyn McDonald, questioned Carla and Kingston. He had Carla repeat that another woman who remained anonymous was later referred to in court as Jane Doe was subjected to the Halcyon Halthane treatment. And on that occasion, Jane had stopped breathing, but before 911 had been called, she came around. Maria McDonald questioned Carla for almost a week. On August 15, 1994, Ken Murray had an appointment with a well-known respected defense lawyer, John Rosen, at the latter's office. Murray was on a mission. He wanted to drop Bernardo as a client and ask Rosen to take on his defense. Murray claimed he simply didn't have the staff or the facilities to follow through in what had become one of the most publicized cases ever tried in Canada. After thinking it over for a few days, Rosen consented to take over the defense of Paul Bernardo. He met his client in jail. Bernardo was pleased with his new lawyer. Unknown to Rosen, Ken Murray had retained another icon of the Canadian bar, Austin Cooper, to represent him. And it was Cooper who informed Rosen that Ken Murray had in his possession important incriminating videotapes, the ones that were taken. Murray had procured them under Bernardo's instructions when he went to the Port Dalhousie home to pick up his client's personal items after an extensive police search. In due course, the six 8mm tapes were turned over to John Rosen, who immediately shared them with the Crown. 
the tapes told it all. There was Carla administering halothane to her helpless sister as well as to Jane Doe. There were Leslie Mahaffey and Kristen French being forced to engage in sex acts, indignities while being threatened with death. The tapes did not show the murders of the two schoolgirls. Throughout the tapes though, Carla appeared to be enjoying herself thoroughly. The impression of a battered woman forced to participate was quickly fading. There was very little doubt in anyone's mind that the tapes had been available to the Crown when Ken Murray picked them up. Carla would have absolutely been charged with murder along with Paul Bernardo. Her evidence would not have been needed to put Bernardo away, but an ironclad deal had already been struck and Carla was actually immune from further prosecution. How rare is that? On May 1st, 1994, Paul Bernardo pleaded not guilty to the nine serious charges against him. Carla, who had obtained a divorce while in prison, was the star witness against him, and John Rosen did the best he could with an unwinnable case. Carla's testimony in the tapes were unassailable. Bernardo was found guilty of all nine charges and sentenced to a maximum term of life imprisonment with no possibility of parole for 25 years. Now, both Carla and Paul were in prison, but there had been a falling out over the case which still lingers. Lawyer Ken Murray had been charged with obstruction of justice for holding onto those tapes for 16 months before revealing their existence. Paul Bernardo was appealing his conviction. Now, the deal with the devil, which would allow Homoka the possibility of gaining her freedom after spending a little over only four years in confinement. Now, she was eligible in par- for parole in 1997, but didn't apply. And in 2001, she was actually eligible for statutory release. So, an update on kind of the more recent Carla Homoka saga. So, she was in fact released in 2005, um, and she actually lived in Quebec for a period of time under a new name called Carla Leanne Teal. And then she actually moved to Guadalupe in 2007, probably due to people <laughs> figuring out who she was. Um, and during that time in the Caribbean, she actually had three children with her new husband, whose name is Terry Bordelais and adopted a new name, uh, Leanne Bordelais. However, Amolka's sister, Logan Valentini, would later confirm that she had actually returned back to Canada during Luca Magnata's trial in 2014. That is another case that will be covered eventually on this podcast. It is a massive case, but I'll just give you the details on how they're quote-unquote connected. Um, so basically, Valentini was a witness um, at Luca Magnata's trial for a super bizarre reason. Um, one of the packages Luca Magnata mailed to an elementary school contained a human body part was inexplicably addressed to her. And Valentini said she was stunned to be involved in Magnata's crimes at all. Now, during the Luca Magnata trial, Valentini confirmed that Homolka had lived in Guadalupe but had returned to Montreal and remarried. She also confirmed that she had seen her sister since um, Carla had returned to Canada. Now, since then, Carla has been seen out and about in Montreal and she's still married to Bordelais, who is the brother of her lawyer. And in early 2019, Homolka was actually photographed participating in a volunteer stint at an elementary school in Montreal. And it caused one of the biggest uproars. Like, I mean, do you blame these parents realizing who she is and that she's volunteering at your kid's school? I, I couldn't imagine. 
Now, three years prior to Luke Magnata posting his gory videos of kittens online, which is, again, if you haven't seen the show, don't F-U-C-K with cats. It's an entire series just about Luke Magnata. But like I said, three years prior to him posting these videos, the 25-year-old Luke Magnata claimed that people were actually connecting him to Homolka falsely. He was saying that it was destroying his career, it's destroying his life. He wanted to set the record straight, that they had no connection. He'd said that he'd like to move because of the rumors and that he'd been receiving death threats and that it was kind of affecting his acting career. Now, a lot of internet sleuths have since alleged that Magnata created the rumors to kind of attain some fame, as well as multiple aliases on social media. And there's actually no proof that the two were connected, but there is a super bizarre connection to his sister and to her sister and all of those things. So um, this is a strange, strange case. And it is kind of scary that Carla Molka is like walking around and has children of her own. And, and I mean, truthfully, do I think that people can be rehabilitated and, and go back into society? I think it's possible, but do I think that after, you know, like it wasn't just like an accidental murder where you know like someone you know just one person died like she's a serial killer as well as her ex-husband so do I think that she's rehabilitated no do I think it's scary that she's a mother absolutely um and I feel a little bit fearful for the people in Montreal that have her walking around all the time Thank you so much for listening. Every case I talk about is so important and deserves the attention. If you could kindly share this podcast with your friends, that would be amazing. If this is the first time you're listening to Northern Blood, thank you. I would love for you to go give our show a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever.